Please go ahead and open your Bibles back up to the Gospel of John. And actually, I'd like you to open up to chapter 1. Yes, you heard that correctly, John chapter 1. Because before we continue on in John chapter 5, I I wanted us to have a quick look at something that I feel is quite relevant to our passage. What I actually want us to have a look at are the very first words of Jesus in this gospel. And interestingly enough, uh, these first words come in the form of a question. All right? So look with me at chapter 1, verse 37, for this question that Jesus happens to ask the very first disciples, uh, the very first people that show any interest at all in following him. Chapter 1, verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Now, what an odd, uh, somewhat unsettling first question for Jesus to ask of his very first disciples. What are you seeking? Because isn't the answer obvious, right? Aren't these disciples seeking you, Jesus, to follow you? But maybe, just maybe, uh, Jesus is quite aware of the obvious, which means he's asking a different sort of question here. Maybe like any great teacher, he's actually asking a question not so much for his own benefit and understanding, but for their benefit and understanding. Maybe this will help uh, us to see what I'm getting at. How about we uh, imagine ourselves in this very scene? Imagine that you are there, trailing after Jesus on some ancient, dusty road, and awkwardly trying to figure out how to make an introduction, you know, because Jesus has caught your interest somehow, you've caught a glimmer of his glory, and then suddenly Jesus turns around, looks at you, looking at you as if he uh, somehow already knows you, and he asks you this somewhat jarring question. First question, what are you seeking? As you come to me, what is it that you're after? What are you hoping for? What is your desire? What is your will in following me? Now, it's important to know that this word seeking, this verb, shows up in some very interesting places in the Gospel of John. In fact, when we see this word, seeking show up, what we often see is Jesus teaching about the, the, the interesting differences between genuine belief in him, really seeking after him, and the less than genuine seeking after him. So as we come to the second half of John chapter 5, go ahead and turn to chapter 5 now. We'll be starting from verse 30. What we actually encounter here is a very negative kind of seeking. In fact, it's outright unbelief in Jesus. We actually meet some people who we're told are seeking after Jesus, but not to follow him, but rather to kill him. And surprisingly, Jesus is gonna tell us that they're seeking him because they're actually seeking after something else, something that they love even more than anything else in the world And this is causing them to actually have murderous thoughts toward Jesus because they see him as a threat 
to this thing that they're seeking after. So let's have a look at the verse in chapter 5 that sets the context for today's uh, murderous seeking. Please look with me at chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So why in the world is anyone seeking to kill Jesus? Well, it all begins at the opening of chapter 5 where we heard about Jesus miraculously healing a man on the Sabbath. If you recall, a man who was an invalid for 38 long, miserable years. And the Jewish leaders get a whiff of this, and instead of rejoicing, they actually get really offended by Jesus because according to their man-made extra-biblical rules about Sabbath, they consider Jesus' miraculous work a work. You know, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, so they saw him as violating Sabbath through this healing. Now, I just want to be clear, nowhere in the Bible does it actually uh, forbid healing on the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus makes the argument that quite the opposite is true. But this whole scene, Jesus crosses a line, and it means now Jesus is on some form of informal trial before these Jewish leaders. Okay? Now, Jesus has a very straightforward, almost provocative response in verse 17. This is how he responds to their charges, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Huh. And then from verse 17 to verse 30, Jesus then elaborates on this very provocative claim, basically explaining that in all that he says and does, he is co-acting with God the Father as the very giver of life and the judge of all the earth. He's claiming to be equal with God. And this is very apparent to these Jewish leaders. And they are beyond furious, right? Because if what Jesus said about himself was not true, then indeed he is committing the worst form of blasphemy according to the law of Moses. And for that, he would deserve to die without mercy. On the other hand, If what Jesus is saying about himself is true, the only uh, acceptable response for, for them, as well as all of us, every human being on earth, is to bow before this Jesus and honor him as we would honor the Almighty God. Now this brings us to what we're going to actually focus on today, today's passage, which is the second part of Jesus' defense before these leaders. And from verse 30 on, Jesus is going to make these uh, 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 claims. He's going, to, he's going to support them by basically bringing more evidence to back it all up. And now in the context of, of Jewish law, the reason why he does this is because if any sort of claim is actually made, what you have to do is you bring two or three reliable witnesses to corroborate or validate your claims, which is why Jesus says in verse 31, verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So Jesus is actually not going to present just two witnesses 
but he's actually going to present three compelling witnesses that are going to support his claims to divine origin, power, and authority. And those three witnesses very quickly are going to be John the Baptist, second John, or or Jesus' own miraculous works, and third, and this is actually kind of the big gun that that he saves for last, is the most significant, the testimony of God the Father himself through the scriptures. All right, so let's, let's keep on working through the text and listen as uh, Jesus presents his first witness, who is none other than John the Baptist, who, by the way, it's, it's hard to get a sense of like how much like gravitas this guy carries. He is so widely respected and revered as a prophet. Look, look at uh, verse 33, where Jesus starts speaking about him. Verse 33, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Okay, so again, here's why John the Baptist was such a significant and weighty witness for Jesus. Uh, Because before Jesus even showed up on the scene, John was this widely revered figure among the people Like they regarded him as a bona fide, authentic, God-sent prophet, you know, in the same vein as Elijah, Isaiah, etc. And this also meant that he was very much feared by the corrupt leaders of his day. So it's important to realize that when Jesus praises John the Baptist as a bright and shining lamp, He's kind of stating something obvious, like everyone kind of agrees with this. They acknowledge his credibility. In fact, uh, John was such a big deal. He was such a shining light that many people wondered out loud, is this guy more than a prophet? Maybe he's even the Christ. People thought John might have been the Christ, which is why Jesus brings up this point in verse 33 that you sent to John. These leaders, they sent to John because they were actually uh, uh, trying to interrogate him to figure out whether he was actually the Christ or not. And John's testimony or answer to them was actually quite clear. Uh, Very matter of fact, he said, I am not the Christ, but I'm here to point to the one that is. I am here sent by God to tell you who the Christ is, okay? And then, who does John the Baptist point to as the Christ? None other than Jesus of Nazareth, who John proclaims to be the very Son of God, the Lamb of God, the promised one who will baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. Now, this point alone about John the Baptist uh, would have been enough to make these leaders basically squirm in their seats. Because as we know elsewhere from other gospels, basically John's prophetic stature was so widely accepted that none of these leaders dared question his authority in public. This was was a big piece of evidence here. But then Jesus says, actually I have something even weightier, something even more compelling than this. Greater evidence than John the Baptist's testimony about me. So next Jesus presents And imagine yourself being confronted with this. The evidence of his own miraculous works. 
which by the way, we've already been told these leaders have witnessed firsthand. It's an undeniable you know, point that Jesus is about to bring before them. So look at verse 36 where Jesus presents the, the weighty evidence of his mighty deeds, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Uh, so Jesus is saying, you don't, you don't have to take John's word for it. Just look at what I'm actually doing. Look at what I've actually done. Watch what I'm about to do, right? Uh, the most recent miracle being this healing of the man who was an invalid for 38 years, who they now see with their very own eyes, walking, jumping, rejoicing. And they even went out of their way, these leaders, to interrogate this guy just to make sure that it was Jesus who had performed this miracle, right? so that they would have a charge to persecute him on. Now, I would say I'm no lawyer, but it seems to me like in any reasonable court of law, uh, these two witnesses would have been enough to kind of seal this case. You know, first you have credible uh, uh, testimony from a reliable expert witness in, in John the Baptist, and then you move on to multiple firsthand accounts of Jesus' miraculous power and works. And yet Jesus isn't done presenting his case at this point. In fact, he brings forth yet another witness who bears the oldest, the most long-standing and most authoritative witness. It's the Father's testimony that we find in their holy scriptures. Look with me at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus starts here with this startling claim that God the Father has long ago already testified and or, or borne witness to the truth about who he is to them. Once again, where? Well, you're going to find the Father's testimony. You're going to find his voice in none other than his word, right? At this point, this is their Old Testament, their, old vener their, their long venerated scriptures, and an interesting thing kind of happens at this point in the story. Jesus kind of moves on from being the one that's being prosecuted. And he sounds more like the judge. He's the one doling out the verdict here. So, Jesus goes on to make what would be a damning judgment here about how these seemingly very religious, very pious leaders have never actually seen God, nor have they heard God, nor do they have God's word abiding in them. Imagine Jesus telling you this, and you're, you're one of the high ups of this long-standing, you know, religious institution at the center of the universe. Hmm. So, how could this be true? Well, according to Jesus, this is due to the fact that they have missed the true content and purpose at the heart of the scriptures, which Jesus tells them, as well as us, 
is none other than himself. All right, verse 39, and it is they, the scriptures, God's very own testimony, that bear witness about me. Uh, this was the, the big idea uh, behind Carrie's overview of the entire Bible last Sunday. Right? I love these illustrations, by the way. He doesn't give himself enough credit, so i got to give him props. Um, but, you know, he, I, think, I think Carrie made the, 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 the point very clear that from beginning to end, the Bible is not just this disconnected series of stories or random moral lessons. Rather, it's one beautiful coherent story, right, that, that ultimately reveals who Jesus is, God's true and promised king, the one who is the, the, the very substance and fulfillment of all the promises of God's kingdom. And this King Jesus is the only one, the only one we must come to if what we're seeking after is life. So this scene is a real tragedy. Imagine dedicating your whole life to something, thinking that you're going to gain life, eternal life as a reward. And actually what's happening is the opposite. Uh, Jesus declares that because they failed to read God's word on God's terms, they're actually further from God than they have ever been. Uh, I would liken it to trying to reading a map without a working compass. Right? So this whole time they think they're heading in the right direction, but they're actually moving further away from where they're trying to go. They have no sense of, of true north. And just so we're clear, um, in every way, in every gospel, Jesus upholds the scriptures as the very word of God, written down for our salvation. So the problem does not lie here within the scriptures. The problem is here in our corrupt, sinful hearts. So what I, what I really want us to understand about the scriptures is that they have their proper place. And I think, I think to receive them faithfully, we receive them like we would receive a precious gift that points us to the greatest gift of all. Right? Uh, perhaps you can think of the Bible as something like a, a one-of-a-kind treasure map right? that leads to the greatest treasure or reward of all, which is a restored relationship with God himself through Jesus Christ, who is our very true and ultimate reward. The Apostle Paul, in our first reading, talked about how because they're not ultimately seeing or wanting to see Jesus, the veil remains over them when they read Moses. But then he says this in 2 Timothy, and this, is, this nicely sums up, I think, the role and function of Scripture in our lives, 2 Timothy 3.15. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that is the Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, how exactly do the scriptures make us wise for salvation? Only through faith in Christ Jesus. 
because it's through Christ that we actually become uh, uh, completed as the people of God, right? That we actually come to be equipped through the scriptures for every good work. Now, I just uh, wanna bring us back to our passage in John. And I think we're kind of uh, probably all wondering the same burning question, which is why? Why would these religious leaders be so willfully blind, you know, uh, in the face of such compelling evidence? Why is it that they can search the scriptures day in and day out and remain so spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind to its message? Why is it that they just refuse to believe? Well, uh, the answer to all these whys I think bring us back to the original question. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Because as it turns out, Jesus knows what it is that they're actually seeking. And it's the cause of their spiritual blindness. Let's read from verses 41 through 44 and pay particular attention to 44. 41, I do not receive glory from people but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? There you have it. Uh, they cannot believe because they are seeking glory, uh, from man, of man, rather than glory from God. What they're seeking is pleasing people rather than pleasing God. What they're seeking is the fleeting and empty praise of men rather than the enduring praise of God. So this, uh, once again, brings us back to the kind of burning question, doesn't it? What are you seeking? What are you personally seeking? Are you seeking after the glory and praise of man? Do you find yourself longing for more status and significance in the eyes of others? Do you find yourself kind of miserable or down when you're not getting such praise, when you're not getting the likes or the clicks or the friend requests or uh, their praise is so fickle and yet we're so easily enslaved or perhaps you're seeking after the glory of man that comes with having the right kind of job spouse house or car or successful children that are well behaved at church Or perhaps you're looking and you're putting your hope on the glory of man and his politics, his ability to maneuver geopolitical, national, you know, crises and policies. That's glory. I, I would like to ask, what do you think Jesus might learn about us uh, if he were to just... Uh, 
Look at your browser or your social media history. Just in the last week. Or am I the only one that struggles with uh, seeking glory from men rather than from God? I just want us to keep in mind, Christians, that Jesus isn't warning a bunch of godless pagans here in this passage. He's actually warning very religious, Bible-loving people here, or at least those who would use the guise of religion while primarily seeking after other things. Vainglory. Because let's face it, even in church, uh, we're prone to wander after the praise and approval of men, aren't we? Rather than the praise and approval of God, we even come to church to see and to be seen. And often with scripture, when we're seeking man's approval, it's the first thing that we're going to twist or dismiss in all manner of ways, adding from it, subtracting from it, all seeking man's glory. You know, uh, Jesus actually provides a a deeper diagnosis of of what's at the root of all this. And uh, he states it very clearly in verse 42. Verse 42. At the end of the day, this is all because you do not have the love of God within you. Ouch. (laughs) Uh, Because, let's face it, if you love someone, one thing you do is you faithfully hear them and you honor them. And, and, you know, this word name here is simply shorthand for the sum of, of someone's person. You know, their honor, their character, their power, their authority. And sadly, these religious leaders do not receive the Father's name. And therefore, they do not receive Jesus, who has come in his Father's name. And yet, there is actually one man that they are very eager to receive. One name that they are just really eager to name drop. In fact, this is the name that would be, you know, if they had a car, they'd, that'd be the bumper sticker, the name of the bumper sticker on, on the back of their, their car. So this, this name, this man's name is none other than Moses, from whom they often try to derive their own sense of significance and glory, right? If you're with Moses, you're on the right side of history, can imagine them saying something like that. So let's read what Jesus has to say about them and their relationship to Moses in verse 45. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses, this great man of God who God used to author the very first five books of the Old Testament, right? The foundation of the scriptures, essentially. And Jesus reveals that Moses is not on their side. He's not going to be defending them in the courtroom of God the Father. Instead, to their utter dismay, Moses will be doing the opposite. He's going to be prosecuting them. Because it, it may be hard to believe, but you know, week in and week out, we've been trying to actually expose the fact that Moses is ultimately testifying about Jesus here. Um, for instance, have you noticed how uh, John's been pointing out Moses' testimony from the very first words of this gospel? 
For instance, the very first words of John are, in the beginning. You know what other book of the Bible opens with those very same words? First book of Moses, right? Genesis. And then we're introduced to John the Baptist, who cries out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is this Lamb of God business referring to? Of course, none other than the Passover Lamb from the book of Exodus, whose blood spares the people from God's final judgment and then liberates them, gives them freedom from slavery from their enemies. And then Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana, where he fulfills the ceremonial purification jars. He transforms the water into wine, which is a picture of how Jesus fulfills all of the ceremonial purification laws of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, purifying us of sin, granting us delight, inviting us to joy. And just in case uh, we miss it, uh, Jesus directly refers to the law of Moses by telling everyone in chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must he be lifted up. This is a reference to the book of Numbers and how Jesus is the ultimate savior, right? For a sinful and idolatrous people who are as good as dead and hopeless apart from him. There's more. I mean, you know, the, the Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob. You know, where does Jacob come up? So, what all this means is that Moses the prophets, the writings, the entire Old Testament, on the day of judgment to come, they're all going to stand together in unison and they're going to bear witness to Jesus. And they're going to accuse all those who reject him. Now, this is not something that uh, we as Christians should gloat over. This is not something that Jesus gloats over and, and I would say that Jesus actually laments this very tragic misunderstanding, right? Which is why he says at the end of, of verse 39, it is they, the scriptures that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, not only that, but did you notice how in our passage, what Jesus had to say about why he's presenting these three witnesses? you know, to, the, to these hardened, you know, hostile leaders as well as to us. Let's read it again for good measure, verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Wow. I say these things to you so that you may be saved. All these hard truths these reminders of God sending prophet after prophet, you know, scripture after scripture from the very beginning, Jesus says it's all so that we hardened sinners may be saved. Which means we come to him so that we may have life. The very eternal life that we all desperately long for and know that we were made for. So this leaves us with one final question. How might we actually seek Jesus? 
How might we actually come to have the love of God the Father within us? Well, the answer according to Jesus is actually believing that through him, God has first come seeking us because he loved us first before we loved him. All right, listen to Jesus' words as he explains why he uh, first came into the world because as it turns out, God the Father was seeking us first. All right, uh, turn with me to chapter four where Jesus uses the word seeking, that verb, for the second time. All right, chapter four, verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus reveals that in him, what you're bearing witness to is God the Father's very will to seek after people to worship him. And here's the problem. All these people, they constitute the sinful world, the hostile world, you know, that's hostile to God. And then Jesus refers to an hour, an hour that is already and not yet, which will bring such worshipers to God the Father. And we've, we've already said this, but um, this hour represents what in this gospel? It's always the cross, Christ and him crucified, which if you think about it, is the ultimate expression of seeking glory from God, not from man. You will not understand the glory of God until you understand the glory of Christ and his cross. I should also mention that, you know, one of the most common names in the Old Testament are for, for the people of God? It's simply those who seek the Lord. Those who seek the Lord. Now, why has God the Father sought us out first? Why did he send his very son to seek after us? Well, as it turns out, it's because he loved us first. Even when we had no love for him within us. Turn with me to John chapter 3, verse 16. This might be a little familiar verse. This comes right after what he says about, uh, you know, Moses and the serpent. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Turning back to chapter 5, Jesus again starts this whole scene describing his sole mission in this world, which is to do his Father's will. Chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So according to his will, what has God the Father sent his son to seek? You know, according to the testimony of these scriptures, 
God the Father has sent his Son, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Jesus. The Word of God, the Word of God made flesh, who speaks the very words of God to us. So again, I want to ask all of us, what are you seeking? Where will you go to for glory? Where will you go to for life? Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would help us to hear and to receive the testimony concerning your son. Open our eyes, open our ears and our hearts to your gracious word so that we may know your love and seek you and worship you in spirit and in truth all of our days. By your spirit, pour your love out in our hearts through your son so that we may come to him